With the 25th pick in the NFL Draft, the Philadelphia Eagles select. You're listening to the Journey to the Draft podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 151 of the Journey to the Draft podcast. I'm Chris McPherson, joined alongside Fran Duffy, and uh, we are less than a month away, Fran. From the 2019 NFL Draft, I know you've been grinding on the Meet the Prospects series. Okay, yes. doing phenomenal work. It's Thank you. receiving a lot of acclaim and and much much deserved. Uh, if you haven't checked them out yet, they're on the app, the site, even YouTube. Today's episode in particular is very intriguing because it features Mississippi State safety Jonathan Abram. We're going to be discussing him later on in the show. But Frank, just take me through what the process has been like in terms of selecting the players going through the tape and picking out which things to highlight of each guy? Well, you know, there's a couple things that we're relying on, and obviously the big thing is I want to try and talk about players that Eagles fans want to hear about, right? Certainly, so, yes. Uh, certainly, I don't want to, I'm not going to do uh, TJ Hawkinson because, you know, Eagles fan. if we posted the, the TJ Hawkinson video on Facebook, every comment would say, why are they looking at another tight end? No, yeah. we're, we're try, I want to try and focus on players that Eagles fans want to hear about. And not necessarily, oh, you know, this would be a great fit in Philadelphia or this is who I think the Eagles are going to take. Look, we're going to talk about 30, 40 guys at some point. I think it's like 33 or 34. The Eagles may only end up with one of those guys. And we have no idea who it's going to be. So really it's just uh, let's talk about the guys that you know are, are in the discussion that everybody's talking about. And I just want to show that these are the things that I've seen from the guy in film study. This is what it, uh, these are the things that this player does really, really well. Here are some of the drawbacks. And then in terms of picking a play, I am kind of reliant on the footage at my disposal, so we'll get a lot of the we get a lot of that B-roll footage. We call that the B-roll in the business. A lot of that footage uh, from the college teams, and we'll look at it and say like, all right, this is a play I can use for a breakdown, and we just kind of go from there. I like the fact that overly you're effusive in the praise of the player, but you do find a way to say here's like the question. You kind of work it in nicely toward the end. That all right? Here's a one question mark that teams and scouts and evaluators are going to have about him. All these players have negatives. Otherwise, they would all be the number one pick. Like, of course. They all can't be perfect prospects. All of them have certain weaknesses, and it's, it's responsible to highlight them. So I'd say, all right, look, this is why uh, you know, Jonathan Abram is a end-of-round one, early second-round pick as opposed to a top-ten pick. You know, I would say the same thing about we talk about DK Metcalf all the time. DK Metcalf is a freak show athlete. And like if you look at all of his positives, you'd say, yeah, top five pick. Why, why isn't he a top five pick? Well, there are, there are some negatives, and that's why he may not be a top five pick. So I think you look at every single player, and you can have that kind of discussion. All right, coming up, Bruce Fellman, the preeminent college football reporter from The Athletic, will join us to share some insights on the top prospects. We're going to catch up with, I should say, Fran is going to catch up with BYU linebacker Sione Takitaki in our unofficial visit. And, of course, we'll have a ton of fun with your questions. We greatly appreciate everyone for rating and leaving comments to help us spread the word about the podcast. Guy, give a special shout-out, some love to Melissa Kelly, who's producing for Behind the Glass this week. Now, let's get this show rolling as we do each and every week with the latest news. And we got some good, juicy nuggets coming up right here, courtesy of Tony Pauline from DraftAnalyst.com in our Draft Buzz. Now it's time for Draft Buzz. All right, we bring in Tony Pauline from DraftAnalyst.com, at Tony Pauline on Twitter. In fact, Tony, I believe you tweeted a short time ago that you have a 1,000 rankings all updated, that you've completely overhauled the site to get ready for the 2019 draft, which is less than a month away now. Is that correct? Correct. We also uploaded about 264 uh, individual player scouting reports. We've probably got another 400 that will be up uh, by the middle of April, so getting in gear. 
Love it, love it, love it. So, uh, Tony, let's get into it. Any buzzworthy topics you want to kick off the segment with this week? I mean, two things. Number one, I've heard since the uh, combine, and it was reiterated uh, last week during Alabama Pro Day, that there are a few red flags popping up on Quentin Williams. They're not major, but they're just people that feel he's a bit naive. He's not naive in a condescending way. It's just he's a bit naive off the field which leads to some concerns about what's going to happen if, when he gets the big-money contract. You know, will he be able to play in a big-market team? Uh, people, there's just some question there at, rather than major concern. The other thing I've heard from a number of league insiders is if the San Francisco 49ers cannot trade down out of the second pick, they are still very likely to uh, select Nick Boza with that selection, despite the fact that they signed D. Ford in free agency in a sort of a, a, a trade and sign pick, and they gave up a second-round selection uh, in 2020. People tell me that the D. Ford contract is very team-friendly. If the Niners need to, they can get out of it. It won't cost them a lot of long-term money. And they feel that Nick Boza, at number two, is their best long-term bet for a, a future pass rusher. Yeah, Tony, I did look at that D. Ford contract uh, shortly after it was signed. They can get out after that second season, that, so that, that does make a lot of sense. Uh, let me ask you about another topic that really affects the top of this draft and also the NFC East, and that's really the thought process of the New York Giants right now. Obviously, there's been a lot in terms of the, the connection between Pat Shermer and Ryan Day uh, at Ohio State, the head coach and offensive coordinator for Dwayne Haskins. What are your thoughts there on, uh, on that connection there? A lot of people have written things on both sides of it that, oh, yeah, you know, the, the Giants are very interested in Dwayne Haskins and they're hiding it. And then other people saying, oh, you know what, they're not really all that interested. What, what are you hearing based off your sources? Yeah, the initial reports about the Giants not showing much interest in, in Haskins were, were very misguided. You know, that connection between Day and Shermer means a lot because Day is going to give them some inside information, and it's information that Shermer can rely on. You know, Day's feelings. Is Haskins NFL ready? When will he be able to step under center uh, at the next level? The positives about Haskins, the negatives, what he has to work on, you know, sort of the details that Pat Shermer doesn't know, Ryan Day does know working with Dwayne Haskins for a year and a half. Now, I'm told that the Giants really like him, and why not? I mean, he had a terrific season in 2018, performed well during his pro day, and he's the perfect fit for both on and off the field. I mean, the Giants... They like, don't want to cut Eli Manning. You let him finish out his career uh, in 2019 in a Giants uniform. You have Dwayne Haskins, you know, maybe sitting on the sidelines, coming in. It's sort of like a, you know, a Patrick Mahomes type of situation in Kansas City, and you saw what that did you know, for the Chiefs. The question is, does Haskins get past the Raiders at four and make it to the Giants with the sixth selection? Uh, I mean, I, I think that the Raiders are, hard, are looking hard at the quarterbacks, uh, they'd like to potentially move up to get Kyler Murray. I don't think that's going to happen. I think they could surprise people and take Haskins with the fourth selection. Let's stick with the quarterbacks, Tony. Okay, you talk about the Giants at number six. Let's go to Denver at number 10, and John Elway is having private workouts with all the top quarterbacks. You have previously said that his heart is set on Drew Locke. Is that still the case, or are they just trying to drum up interest for a team that might want to move up for one of those other quarterbacks? Well, I, I think it's it's a little bit of both. I think, number one, you know, it's good to see Elway checking all the boxes. I, I mean, seriously, or literally, you know, the only quarterback that he's likely to be locked out of is Kyler Murray. I don't think that Dwayne Haskins is going to be there at 10, but if they really like Dwayne Haskins, they may make a move up to get him because not only did the Denver Broncos need a quarterback, 
but they but Elway really needs to hit on the quarterback. So they really need to uh, do their homework and, and really get in deep with all these guys. Whether it's sitting at ten and taking Drew Locke, whether it's potentially moving up for Dwayne Haskins, whether it's maybe moving back for a guy like Daniel Jones. Really, I, I think right now the only other player who may come into conversation that's a non-quarterback. Uh, with the Denver Broncos, is T.J. Hawkinson. But if they don't move, I still think Drew Locke's going to be the selection at number 10. Tony, let's get into some guys that are rising and sliding up the boards with pro day performances and you know how much of an impact those days can have. And we want to talk about a player that Eagles fans are, are frankly obsessed with right now and at least obsessed with talking about, and that's Josh Jacobs, the Alabama running back. Runs a 4-6 last week. And then you see, you see some commentators say, oh, no way you're, you're taking him in round one now. Uh, my guess is, is that his stock isn't affected too much by it, but, but what are you hearing? What are your sources saying about Josh Jacobs and his stock at this point in the process? Yeah, basically along the lines of what you just said. You know, if, if you had Josh Jacobs graded as one of the top 12 players in this draft, well, you know, maybe you, 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 you're going to pull him back a little bit. Most people, like myself, have him graded as a bottom third uh, round one type of guy. doesn't mean that's where he's going to go, but that's where we have him graded, somewhere between, uh, pick, uh, between the 20th and, and the 33rd uh, best player in this draft. So I don't think the 4-6 really hurts him that much because if you watch the film, you know, he plays faster than a 4-6. More importantly, he has that great initial quickness in the first 10 yards to basically burst through the hole, to turn the corner, to get around the perimeter. So... If you're a team that was thinking of taking Josh Jacobs in the first uh, initial 15 picks, and I don't know that there was any team that was seriously considering, maybe you'll pull back after the uh, after the 4-6 and the 40. But overall, I don't think it's going to hurt his stock. Tony, Charles Robinson from Yahoo Sports had a tweet thread last week, late last week, and uh, was just hitting on a bunch of what he's hearing around the league regarding different prospects and uh, two cornerback prospects in particular, one that seems to be rising, one that seems to be sliding. The slider seems to be DeAndre Baker from Georgia uh, because of concerns about his speed and drill work, while the riser is Byron Murphy out of Washington. Uh, in fact, he's someone who many teams are going back to check the tape for good reason. Are you hearing similar things regarding both of these players? Well, I, as far as DeAndre Baker's concerned, that's something that we talked about, you know, at the Combine. I mean, even before the Combine, I had said that DeAndre Baker, the word was, he was not taking his Combine training seriously. He was showing up intermittently. And I, when we spoke uh, at the floor of the, uh, at the Indianapolis Convention Center, I said that DeAndre Baker, I was not expecting good things from him, turned into an average 40 time, did not look good in position drills, uh, did not rerun his, did not try and improve on his 40 time, uh, during a pro day, and didn't really look all that much better. This should come as no surprise to someone who listens to the Journey to Draft podcast because we've talked about this before. Never had DeAndre Baker graded as a first-rounder. I think he's probably a mid-second rounder with guys like uh, Juwan, uh, the kid from Vanderbilt, with, with Sean Bunting of Central Michigan, with Justin Lane of uh, Michigan State moving up. I think the big loser is going to be DeAndre Baker, and he could slide into the bottom half of round two. The same thing with uh, Murphy. Should not come as a uh, as a surprise to anybody who, who who's watched the film. You know, the big question about Murphy is his size. How many teams are going to be able, will overlook the fact that he's not six foot tall to take him uh, to take him early in the draft, early being in the middle part of round one. But as we stated all along, and as I said all along, he's the most polished cornerback in this year's draft, bar none. He's got the best ball skills, bar none. The question with him is he's not really tall. I think the fact that he put on 14 pounds 
uh, prior to the combine, came in at 199 pounds, ran a 4.55. Some teams may question what is his actual, what is his best playing weight? You know, is he a 190-pound cornerback, or is he better off playing in the low 180s? And some teams may not want a guy that's that short and that small. But there's no question about it. Byron, when you look at just the pure ball skills and the playmaking skills, no cornerback in this draft compares to Byron Murphy. All right, Tony, one other note that Charles Robinson had that really stood out to me and wanted to get your take on. Uh, going to the University of Michigan, Charles is apparently hearing there's a lot of praise behind the scenes for Devin Bush, the linebacker who tested off the charts at the Combine, and Chase Winovich as well, to the point that they're going to be selected higher than what is anticipated. Are you hearing similar things? And what is that area where we could see these players being selected? Some mock drafts are starting to have Bush there in the top 10, top 15 selections. Haven't seen that kind of buzz with Winovich to the point where he's a first-round selection. Yeah, Bush, I, I think it's a little bit early for Bush because you're right, he did test off the charts, and he's the guy that a lot of people like, but he's still short, under six foot tall. He's still a bit one-dimensional. He's, a better, he's primarily a run defender who struggles in coverage as opposed to, say, Devin White, who's able to go sideline to sideline and do better things when the ball is in the air compared to Bush. So I still think that uh, Devin Bush of Michigan is a bottom half of round one type of guy. It, again, it's all dependent on where you had him graded beforehand. I don't think he's improved that much. Winovich has definitely stored up draft boards. He's not a first-rounder. He's a second-day pick. But you've got to look uh, as to where he came from. I mean, he was a guy who entered the season with a seventh-round grade. Scouts predicted he was a guy who ran the 40 and 4.95. He runs a 4.59 at the Combine, tests off the charts. He's now a guy I, I still think he's more of a third-round prospect. Maybe he uh, moves into the second round, the late part of the second round. But he's a great combination of instincts, intensity, and now he shows the athleticism or he displayed that he's got the athleticism that a lot of people didn't think he had. Tony, before we get into our mock draft roundup, I wanted to ask you about one more guy, and that's Jalen Ferguson, the pass rusher from Louisiana Tech. Had a big pro day last week, and he checked in over uh, 270 pounds, 15 pounds heavier than where he was at the senior ball. Obviously, it was not at the combine, uh, at least not for the, the weigh-ins and uh, things like that. He went only for medical and interviews with teams. Goes and, and look, you, you had written that the positional workout was very good. Uh, obviously, you know, what he's doing in drill work is very, very important. But in terms of the times, uh, the three cone, the agility drills, not very kind for Jalen Ferguson. Uh, where are you seeing his stock at this point and where it is at this point in the process? Firstly, when you go back to the three cone and the, uh, and the shuttle, I watched those times. The, the, the field was slippery to the fact where he fell down a couple times. It wasn't where his foot was slipping out. I mean, he was on the ground. So he basically, a lot of those guys had to approach it very cautiously because it was a slippery field. Where does Jalen Ferguson uh, end up in the draft? I think he's one of those guys that could, you know, has a grade that is a late first-round grade, but he's going to end up somewhere in the top half of round two. He's a terrific pass rusher. His instincts are very suspect. And when you just look at the numbers of defensive linemen that are going to go in round one, you're going to have guys that are just going to be pushed out of the initial 32 picks, guys who probably carry late first-round grades that you're going, to get to, you're going to find in the top of round two, middle part of round two. I think Jalen Ferguson is one of them. And you'll, one thing you noticed, Tony, uh, as well, was that you had written that the Dallas Cowboys were very interested. You wrote that uh, Jerry Jones was on a flight to go down to meet with him, that Leon Lett was there uh, at his pro day. What I found interesting was Leon Lett is the defensive tackles coach for the Dallas Cowboys. Is there a chance that they kind of view him as a defensive tackle, or do you think he and Rod Marinelli just kind of splitting up the visits there between defensive linemen? 
No, I don't. I think maybe he's he. You could pu- push him inside on pass rushing downs and try and let him rush from the inside. I don't think he's a consistent uh, defensive tackle. I think he's very athletic. He's very explosive off the edge, and you let him rush off the edge. If you use a three-man line, or even even if you use a four-man line in dime packages, you may kick him inside and let him try and exploit the guards. You know, on a, on a third and ten or something like that. All right, Tony, last but not least, let's get into our mock draft roundup. And Mel Kuyper from ESPN released, I think it's his third version of his mock draft earlier this morning. And we'll start with the Eagle selection, some some eye-popping things. It, it was about 6.30 this morning or so. I knew Fran was just getting to the office. I was scrolling through the, the mock draft, and it's one of those where some of the selections, you know, just, just different than the group speak, the group think that you're seeing from other analysts in the draft biz. So uh, first with the Eagle selection, he has them taking Jonathan Abram, the hard-hitting safety from Mississippi State there at number 25. Your thoughts on that? I think it's early for uh, Jonathan Abram. I don't think he's a first-round pick. I think if the Eagles like him, they could basically do something we saw last year with Dallas Goddard. They trade out of the first round, they get some extra selections, and maybe they then take Jonathan Abram in the top half of round two where I think he's better value. And the next thing that stood out to me, it's a name that we've not seen in the first round of mock drafts previously, at least none that I've seen, and it's the wide receiver from Ohio State, not Paris Campbell, but Terry McLaurin, who had an outstanding senior ball. He's going to number uh, 20, I think it's 26 or so, to the Indianapolis Colts. And McLaurin has checked off all the boxes in the, in the uh, run-up to the draft, the senior ball, combine, everything else. I still don't think he's first-round material. I think what's happened is is. There are a lot of questions at the receiver class this year. So you're going to see all kinds of players all over the place. You mentioned the name of Paris Campbell. If there is an Ohio State receiver to end up in round one, he's the only one that I think lands there. Okay, two more names I want to pick out here. One, Rockison from Temple. Okay, again, another person who has aced the pre-draft process, but he not only goes in the first round, but goes ahead of Greedy Williams, who was, I think, by most analysts, the consensus top cornerback. You know, back in the in the February in the winter time when before the combine and everything really started getting rolling, he has him going to the Oakland Raiders. There, I believe it's number twenty-four, right before the Eagles. You know, I'd be shocked. I think Rockison has the, the playing style that the Raiders like, and I'm sure the general manager loves Rockison. But with bigger guys there like uh, Sean Bunting, who I don't think is a first-round uh, uh, value, or Justin Lane, who I don't think is a first-round value, I think they'd go for the taller, more physical cornerback. Not that Rockison isn't physical. He absolutely is. I just think that they would go for a bigger corner there. All right, and the last one that stood out, another player who's not really been commonly mentioned in the first round of mock drafts. Last year, I think it was Frank Ragnow, who was the interior lineman, who was selected by the Bengals. That kind of caught everyone by surprise on draft weekend. This year, is it going to be Eric McCoy? He's being mocked by Kuyper going to the Baltimore Ravens at number 22. Well, Ragnow made a, a well-known late uh, sprint-up draft boards, and literally like the, la- the last month, everyone knew he was going in the first round. McCoy is making a, a, a similar type of move up draft boards, but he's more of a guy that's going from a third rounder to the second rounder. I don't think the Ravens take him. I think from what I've heard and I've reported last week, the Ravens are absolutely looking at the uh, receiver. They like D.K. Metcalf. If they can't get D.K. Metcalf, I think they may surprise everybody in that slot and take Paris Campbell of Ohio State. 
Love it, love it, love it. Great stuff as always from Tony Pauline. Again, check out his work at Tony Pauline on Twitter and on DraftAnalyst.com. All right, come up next, pick six, six players who Fran and I compare to current members of the Philadelphia Eagles. Now it's time for pick six. All right, this is going to be a fun one. A little bit of challenging from my perspective. You know, six players who compare to current Eagles, who remind us of players who are currently on the roster. Sure. And, uh, you know, I- I'm sure as soon as you came up with the topic, you probably had like 10 that just like roll no, off the tongue. I, or? Not necessarily 10. I-, I had a couple that like hit you right away, but some that it required some thinking. Okay. What was interesting was you laid out your couple right off the bat. And I'm like, and they were all one side of the ball. So I was trying to go the opposite side of the ball, and it, it wasn't going to be a perfect fit. So I was like, I can't, you can't force Player it. Player comparisons never are. No, you can't, never, can't never force hurt. it. Um, so what, take me through your process. Is it from your, your scouting and just watching the tape? Is it just like, you know, hey, that, that reminds me of Player X? Yeah, a little bit of both. And that's what, like I said, player comparisons are never – are very rarely perfect where you could say like, oh yeah, this is exactly the body type, the play personality, the role, the role they play in college, like how it will be used in the NFL. Like it's never, you know, apples to apples across the board. So it's, it's a mix of things. And, and my selections were kind of a mix of things. All right, well, let's go. You can kick things off here. Right. Let's go. Uh, so I went Oklahoma offensive lineman Cody Ford, a guy that uh, played right tackle this past season, was a left guard uh, leading up to that, played next to Orlando Brown last year. And I think when you look at Cody Ford, his game is all about power. He's a big man. He loves moving people. He loves moving guys against their will. And he's more athletic than you would think. I mean, you watched him. The raw numbers from his combine workout weren't great, but you and I watched the workout, and you and I both said to each other when we were walking back to the Indiana Convention Center, you know, Cody Ford moves pretty well for a big guy. I mean, and so to me, and this actually goes back, I got to give some credit uh, to Ben Fennell for this. When we watched Cody Ford back in the fall, uh, when we had heard, I think Tony had said uh, on the Journey of the Draft podcast, oh, you know, he could be a a first-round pick. So, all right, let's go watch Cody Ford. So he kind of moves like Brandon Brooks, you know, and he's a big body um, and the way, just the way that he moves, the way he carries his weight kind of reminds me of Brandon Brooks. And I think that he could be that kind of a player uh, at the next level, more, certainly more of a guard as opposed to a tackle, just like Brandon does. He's got the size to be able to shift outside. Um, Brandon has talked about that. I think in the past, um, you know, when he first signed here, yeah, he does have a little bit of that tackle versatility, but uh, certainly, you know, at his best when he's playing inside. And I think that's the, 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 the picture there with Cody Ford no question so I I was trying to do all defense but instead there were some that just made too much sense like you're almost trying to force it in a certain way and there's one that I'm not the first person to come up with this one Lance Earline from NFL.com who does a phenomenal job with all the draft reports and he comes up with some crazy crazy comparisons players I'm like I don't even know who that NFL players let alone the college guy uh but this one made a lot of sense and that's Marquise Hollywood Brown Comparing him to Deshaun Jackson, okay? And it's you look at the frame, okay? The frame, the body types are very similar. You know, a lot of the criticisms of Brown is, you know, he's going to be undersized. He's like, he's at 5'9", right around where Deshaun is at 5'10". I believe, I believe actually Brown might be lighter. I think he's around I think so. 166. I yep. think Deshaun was about 175 uh, coming out of California. Uh, but here's one stat that stood out to me. Deshaun Jackson, since he was a second-round pick of the Eagles in 2008, leads the NFL with 63 receptions of 40 or more yards. Okay, Easily could see the track-blazing speed. Marquise Brown was tied for the nation's lead with 11 catches of 40 more yards. 
this past year. So certainly, you know, the way that they're utilized, you could definitely see the transition to the NFL. Now, I would say Marquise Brown is not good of a deep ball catcher as Deshaun Jackson is. Deshaun Jackson is phenomenal at finding the ball in the air. And Marquise Brown also wasn't really utilized as a return specialist. Deshaun, I mean, we all know some of his iconic plays, especially against the Giants, have come as a returner. So there are some areas where Marquise Brown certainly has to develop and take next level. So he's not exactly what Deshaun Jackson is. But when you're looking for that vertical element, and that's this is why Marquise Brown was linked to the Eagles in a lot of mock drafts before Deshaun was acquired in the trade because that's the one element that I think most people said would really open up this Eagles offense. And it's, I, I'll admit to something. Uh, I did leave him there uh, for you. Oh, that's because fine. I actually that's actually one that I have written down is Marquise Brown to Deshaun Jackson. It wasn't it wasn't in your initial three. It wasn't in the initial three. I, le- I left him there because to me, like it, there are like I said earlier, it's not apples to apples across the board, but there are a lot of similarities with those two guys. Yeah. And, and to me, like the one thing that I when we talked about this after the senior bowl and I was talking about, oh, I can't wait to go in and watch Marquise Brown. I wanted to see how he tracked the deep ball because that was something that Deshaun Jackson's always done at such an elite level. Marquise Brown's pretty darn good at it, and he, he doesn't do it at the Deshaun level right now, um, but that's actually a play. Tease, uh, I think it's tomorrow's episode of Ooh. Meet the Prospect. It's him tracking the deep ball. So, um, yeah, Marquise Brown is a guy that really, really intrigues me. All right, I'm going to stay on offense. I'm going to go with a tight end this time, and uh, Jay Sternberger from Texas A&M. Okay. He runs – he, he runs – first of all, he's, he's a vertical guy. He's a guy that can get down the field. He can be used in space. He runs this corner post route really, really well, really, really well, almost as well as Zach Gertz does. And similar kind of body type, comes from a pro-style offense, not a great blocker, but a serviceable blocker, functional blocker. The, comp- the, the comparisons were, was kind of easy for me when I look at uh, Jay Sternberger, the way that he kind of gets in and out of breaks when compared to Zach Ertz. He's not as refined as Ertz is. I mean, Ertz is probably the best route runner of any tight end in the National Football League. But you look at Sternberger, he can be that kind of player in a passing game. So my sec- I'll use this. This will be my ode to the defense one okay. here. Okay. And basically, I'm just kind of almost going player by player. Okay. Is there a player who's like this guy? Is there a player like that guy? And I came across Kamu Gruje Hill. And mm-hmm. I'm thinking to myself, converted safety, was recruited to Eastern Illinois to play safety, moved to linebacker, you know, very rangy, great in coverage, you know, ideal for taste NFL core special teams guy, one of the best in the league, team captain. And then I just happened to say, you know, there's a player who at the senior bowl and my Notre Dame bias is going to show a little bit here. But there's a player who seemed to check a lot of the boxes. And then I looked at body types and they both check in right around 6'2", 230 pounds. And that's Drew Tranquil. Yeah. Okay. And you go from a leadership perspective, the conversion from safety to linebacker, uh, the styles of play. All, all to me, checked a, a lot of the similar boxes across the board. You know, you know, Kamu Grugier, team captain on special teams this year. Tranquil has been a captain for for uh, Notre Dame. So that, to me, my, my second one right there in terms of where they even fit at the next level, where you could say, okay, at worst, Tranquil's going to be a great special teams player, should sure. be a key special teams guy, but in today's NFL should have a role on defense as well. Yeah, and then my last one, I went, I stayed on offense. I went with a guy that, to me, I, I was harping on him a lot in the fall, and if you've been listening to this since the season started, you know I, I'm pretty high on Tyree Brady, the wide receiver from Marshall, and a comparison I made uh, was that in ways he reminds me a lot of Alshon in the way that he plays the ball in the air, the you way he's able to finish while, yep. the catch point. Uh, so I, I went with that comparison. Again, 
not apples to apples. I'm not saying he's he's going to be Alshon Jeffrey, but shades of him. And in terms of the way that he moves, uh, he does have more vertical ability than you would expect, just like Alshon Jeffrey. Uh, and the way he's able to go up and win at the catch point. When I talked with him back down in Mobile. He kind of said, yeah, like I do kind of see my game similar to Alshon. So, uh, you know, it's funny you say that. But um, two other ones I almost went with real quick. All right. Uh, we mentioned Terry McLaurin earlier. Pick six. Is this pick six? Pick, it's going to be pick with eight for Fran, me. it's always, uh, yeah. Terry fine. McLaurin we mentioned earlier. Okay. Mac Hollins in terms of role. Different body types and everything, but in terms of okay. great kid, great at, checked all the boxes. And can be, you know, you feel good that he's going to make your roster and be, you know, a third, fourth receiver. I like that one. Terry Let's McLaurin. Go on. Which is why taking him in the first round is is. A little crazy to me. Um, and the next one, LJ Collier. You, you ran this one by me yesterday yeah. afternoon, yeah. Malik Jackson. Malik Jackson coming out of Tennessee was a DN-D tackle hybrid and kind of played both spots, was really violent with his hands, good pass rusher. You thought that his best reps would come inside, but he had that versatility to be able to do either. That's kind of how I view Collier, and he's got that same mentality, that same edge uh, that, that Jackson played with. Now, Jackson obviously went more down the road of playing as a, an interior player, and now he's a, a full-time defensive tackle. But going back to how I felt about Jackson coming out of school when he was at Tennessee, kind of similar players. I like that. That's a good yeah. one right there. Uh, my last one, it's funny. We were at the Senior Bowl Mobile. You know, I'm learning about these guys, and we start talking about Garrett Bradbury, mm. and you just talk about you know the body type, a little undersized, might not, might not be right for everyone. Uh, interior versatility, yep. football IQ, like there's so much to like about him. You know, again, just a little bit undersized, and I'm like, man, it just screamed Jason Kelsey. Yep. Just absolutely, and I know you have a different NFL comparison, uh, but to me, I, I just look at the two, and that seems to be what Jason Kelsey was now. Bradbury is going to be probably a mid to late first round pick. Yep. Jason Kelsey, maybe just because of the where the game was at that point, even though it was just 2011, he was a six round selection. Yep. If you were to do a redraft now, I mean, Howie Roseman said it during his press conference himself yesterday. Jason Kelsey is an all time Philadelphia Eagle, and he immediately said, "I know exactly what I'm saying. Jason Kelsey is one of the greatest players in franchise history. That's why they want to extend him." to make sure to try to they could do everything possible so that he finishes his career here. So uh, Kelsey probably in some ways opened the door for teams to look at someone like Bradbury to be like, you know what, if he has the IQ, if he's a leader, you know, if he has the athleticism, which, which he showed at, at the Combine. And Senior Bowl week, it's interesting because the first day he was getting overpowered, was yep. getting bowled over a bit, but improved as the week went on. So uh, to me, Kelsey probably helped teams – open their eyes to be more um, more welcoming of the thought of having someone like Bradbury in their offense. So my last one there is Bradbury to Kelsey. But I know, like you, like I said earlier, you have a different comparison. Yeah, I, I wrote down Alex Mack, who uh, started with the Cleveland Browns, now with the uh, Atlanta Falcons, and you know, just a really athletic player who's got the size to be able to hold up as well. Uh, I know with our friend uh, Ross Tucker has compared him to me, talk, when talking with him in the past, compared him to Tom Nalen. Remember Tom Nalen? Yeah, uh, for Pro Bronco. Bowl, yeah, Pro yeah. Bowl Bro- Bronco under uh, Mike Shanahan. Um, to, uh, very high praise because he was one of the best centers in the NFL. All right, so that's going to do it there. That's our pick six. Six players who are in the draft process who remind us of current Philadelphia Eagles. Now it's time. I'm excited about this one. Our Mr. Relevant with Bruce Feldman from The Athletic. It's time for Mr. Relevant. Very, very excited 
about this week's Mr. Irrelevant. He is the best reporter when it comes to college football, okay? Did a long time for Fox Sports, but now he's with The Athletic. None other than Bruce Feldman. You can follow him on Twitter, at Bruce Feldman, CFB. And, of course, he authored the book, The QB, The Making of the Modern Quarterback. And, uh, actually, I know a lot of times, Bruce, when you talk about the draft, you talk about the quarterbacks, and we talk about that a lot on this podcast. But the big NFL news this week is the retirement of Rob Gronkowski from New England. And I wanted to ask you, since he's moved on, and you posted some stuff on Twitter about Gronk and you know covering him at Arizona, has he changed the tight end position? Certainly we've seen it at the NFL level, but at the college level from since he, uh, since he left Arizona. I don't, I don't think he has, guys, just because he was such a rare kind of specimen. You know, he's a huge guy who is super strong from the time he came out of, you know, the Northeast to go to Arizona. And it was interesting. Sonny Dykes, who's a, who's a, uh, now the head coach at SMU, but he was the offensive coordinator for Mike Stoops when he got to Arizona. They had Gronk. And Sonny Dykes came out of that Mike Leach air raid system. There are no tight ends in that. But they saw what, what Gronk could do because the roster just wasn't, you know, stocked with what they needed traditionally for what they wanted to run but they're like wait we got this you know freakish tight end uh who could do things for them and create so many mismatches and also give them a run game and a presence where you know usually if you have a tight end who can block a linebacker hey that's that's a win and they have a tight end who could dominate a defensive lineman in the run game at times certainly in the in the old pack 10 so you know if you could find that and, and look i know that that uh, you know, you look at Jimbo Fisher's at Texas A&M now. He just signed a recruiting class where he has two really big and athletic tight ends that they're all excited about. But they're not Rob Gronkowski, six six two sixty, who can go down the field. But also, I think it's the usually have one or the other. Even if you have a, a tight end who can block, you don't think he can have a presence like Gronk can. So, I mean, that's a little bit of the white whale out there. And because those are such so much mismatched guys. And what you're seeing now, I just think they're hard to find. A lot of those guys are playing basketball now. They're not, uh, you know, and you look, if they are playing basketball, if they're Jimmy Graham and they come back to football, they're, they're a vertical threat and they're a red zone threat, but they're probably not a, uh, a real, real factor in the run game just because maybe if they were basketball guys, they're not wired to, to do that, where this guy certainly was. Bruce, to follow up on that, looking at this year's draft class, the top two happen to come out of the same program. What are your thoughts and what insights do you have into T.J. Hawkinson and Noah Fant out of Iowa? Yeah, so I, I work at Fox Sports. I do games you know, part of broadcast, so I'm on the sideline. And we did a couple of Iowa games the last few years. And Noah Fant is one of these guys who is as freaky an athlete as there is a tight end. and so. But there was already always kind of uh, an intrigue about him. I mean, they had had him 40, 42 inch vertical jump. I mean, he was he's kind of more of a flex tight end, six five, two forty ish. Now he got bigger for the combine, but super athletic. But um, he didn't. They didn't always use him. Like one of the games we did this past year, late in the year, they played Northwestern. It was basically for the division title in the in the West and the Big Ten. And in, in the fourth quarter, Noah Fant was non-factor. He wasn't even on the field for a lot of it. And so you kind of wondered, where, is there a disconnect there? What's, you know, what's the, what does the staff feel about him? You, you, you 
you know, you didn't know what was really going on there. Uh, whereas TJ Hawkinson, such a complete tight end, not quite as athletic, still pretty athletic, really good in the run game, did everything they loved him. Um, you know, he was he was the best weapon Iowa had. He just continued to develop and develop. I mean, I think to me, TJ Hawkinson is is probably more of a sure thing. I think if you're getting him, if your team drafts him, you're going to have a good player for ten years. No offense, you might have a, a great player, but you also might, you know, the part I wonder about is why was he not more of a factor in that offense? It wasn't like they had some pretty good receivers, but it wasn't like they were, you know, he was a mismatched guy. Even if you want to put Hawkinson, you want to keep Hawkinson out there, you got a 6'5", 240-pound guy who's more athletic and dangerous. The defenses knew about him. They were going to have to worry about him. So I wondered, okay, you know, why was he not out there? I think, you know, to talk about these two guys, I think this is a really deep tight end draft beyond just, you know, it's a great D-line draft and everybody knows that. I think there's some really intriguing tight ends and these two guys, you know, do your due diligence on no offense because you might get somebody really special there. And Iowa tight ends have proven to be really good in the NFL if you look at the track record over the last two decades. Well, Bruce, it's Fran Duffy, and I wanted to shift the attention to the running back position. You had a great nugget on Twitter uh, not too long. I believe it was, it was either earlier this week or mid, midweek last week uh, talking about Josh Jacobs from Alabama and just how uh, you spoke with a running backs coach in the NFL, and they talked about just you know his old-school mentality and, that, and just raved about him uh, at the Combine and what his interview was like. Uh, I wanted to see if you would expand on that for our listeners and you know just give us any kind of background you've got on Josh Jacobs, the player, and the person. Yeah, one of these coaches, you know, a lot of times when I go to the combine every year, and I, it's kind of the opposite for me than it is for, for most, of, most of the guys who are there covering it you know, from the NFL perspective, just because I'm, you know, I know a lot of the guys from college. So it's like they, um, you know, you're seeing some former college coaches who are now in the NFL. And, and what happened was one of the guys I knew had come into the media or the interview room when they brought in all the running backs and he was just like, Oh, I want to see how these kids kind of handle this, uh, you know, this setting a little bit. And so we got to talking and he went on for about 10 or 15 minutes, just about Josh Jacobs. And I was like, man, I don't know if I've ever heard a running back coach talk this long, this glowingly about one player. And I'm, it's not to say like people didn't rave about Saquon because they did, but Saquon, as good as he was, as great as he was, you know, a lot of it was Saquon was a ridiculous athlete who continued to develop and worked, you know, like he wasn't a ridiculous athlete, you know, and he had the highlight film. Whereas Josh Jacobs, what's crazy about Josh Jacobs is there is an early signing period in college football now. There has been for two years. If it was that way four years ago when he was coming out, Josh Jacobs is probably at like Missouri State, not at Alabama. He was such a late bloomer and blew up. And so when I'm talking to this running back coach, he just was talking about, I watched every, you know, every snap. This kid plays with passion and a level of, like, love for the game and physicality. You just don't see guys anymore play like this. You may see flashes of it in guys, but not every snap. And then he talked about how engaging Jacobs was in their meetings and, like, everything confirmed what he had seen. You know, just loves to block, great receiver, loves to be physical, all those things that I think – like, I would be shocked if Josh Jacobs, you know, we saw certainly Trent Richardson out as, as terrific as he was in, at Alabama. High round pick, turned out to be a big bust, and, you know, now he's in the AAF. 
I'd be surprised. Wherever Josh Jacobs goes, and I don't think he's going anywhere near as high as Trent Richardson, but I'd be surprised if he is not really well thought of two or three years later by everybody in the organization from just all the people I've heard from glowingly talk about Josh Jacobs. Bruce, I love the perspective you mentioned about how you're covering the pre-draft process differently because you've already been around these college prospects, but the guys who come from the small schools and guys like Titus Howard from Alabama State, John Kaminsky from Charleston, when, when do you kind of learn about these guys? Because during the season, as you said, you're focused on the, the Power Five programs and, and the you know the biggest stars in the college football atmosphere. When, when do you learn about these small school guys? And, and do you kind of get a heads up about them coming down the pike before most people find out about them, whether it's reporters or, or the draft community? You know, I might because I'm around college campuses doing games, and so you invariably run into NFL scouts. And for most of the folks who are covering the draft or covering their NFL teams, they're busy with the NFL that time of year. So, you know, these small school guys usually fall into two categories. They're either drop-down guys who started out somewhere and then for a variety of reasons, whether they got in trouble or they they got just didn't fit in or they're late bloomers, they ended up transferring to smaller schools, and then all of a sudden their athleticism kind of shines through, and then all of a sudden people are rediscovering them four years later. Or they're John Kaminsky, who is a complete late bloomer, who was 6'4", 215-pound quarterback in Ohio and had no offers other than this Division II school in the Mountain East. Uh, you know, and I think people heard Charleston. I think they just assumed... A lot of people assumed it was, oh, yeah, in South Carolina. No, this is University of Charleston in West Virginia. And I didn't hear about him till till late in the process. A, uh, a buddy of mine is, a, is an NFL uh, position coach, a defensive line coach, and he had told me about – I was talking to him about some other guys. He said, our scouts went through there and had this guy at like 200 – it wasn't 286. It was probably like 275. And they said he ran, they said he ran four six eight, and I was like what? And then you know you do more due diligence, and I know enough of these you know trainers around the country. Um, you start hearing more, and so when I talked to Kaminsky and the guys he worked with, I mean they were talking about he's going to run in the four sixes, or in the he's going to run low four seven, and he's two hundred eighty five pounds now. And Brian Cox, the longtime you know NFL player and coach, he had worked with him. My old colleague at Fox Sports, Dave Wants, that had had worked with him to help him get ready for the draft process. And uh, you know, so we know he's raw. He was at the Senior Bowl. He didn't, you know, he didn't have a, a blow you away week of practice. But then he shined in the games and in the game, and people kind of saw, okay, he's a really intriguing player. I don't know if he's a fourth round pick or something like that, but we see plenty of examples of of small school guys who really develop and continue to work and have that work ethic. And also when they're coaching and, and just the attention to detail kind of catches up, they can turn some heads. And I think that's one of, you know, it's fun to find those kinds of guys. I mean, you know, the, the example I was using about just being on campus, I remember I went and spent a couple of days at the University of Texas in August because we were doing a Texas-Maryland game in our first Fox game. And there was a longtime NFL scout for the Steelers who happened to be there. And so we had dinner, and he was talking about there was a, the first, it was like week zero, there was a game 
couple of games on that weekend, and he was talking about some players who I'd never heard of who were at some small schools. And I was like, okay, I'm going to kind of file these away and keep an eye out on these guys just because these scouts, I mean, they're canvassing the country. They're such a good resource just at least for background on some of this stuff. And it's always good to kind of to line up with, you know, because down the road you, you never know how it's going to blow up. Bruce, I wanted to ask you about your freak list because honestly, it, and so our longtime listeners will still will laugh about it because I bring it up all the time, and, and I've been listening or I've been reading it uh, ever since you started publishing it, and, and it's a great resource just to you know just kind of get a head up on some of these guys that are some of the best athletes in college football. And I wanted to ask you about two guys that you've written about, uh, namely in that pre the uh, the pre combine version that you did uh, back in February. Two guys from Baylor, and you talked with Matt Rule, the head coach there. He gave you a heads up on Derek Thomas, the uh, really physically gifted corner who then went on to have an outstanding workout. So you were ahead of the curve on that. But I want to ask you about Jalen Hurd, the the wide receiver uh, from the Bears who, look, I mean, he, his story is really unlike anything we've really seen in recent memory, at least you know from, from my perspective. I mean, the guy started his career. He was the lead running back ahead of Alvin Kamara at Tennessee, ran for 1,000 yards. He was, you know, all SEC running back, transfers out, goes to Baylor, wants to make the move to receiver, does so. Is this a guy that, I mean, have you ever seen a guy that's kind of made this transition to now where, you know, he's probably not going to be a first or second round pick, but he'll be a mid-round pick a receiver after such a, a glorified career early on as a running back in the SEC? It's strange just because of the dimensions. I mean, he was, you usually don't see uh, tailbacks who are 6'4 or 6'3, you know, like as big as he is, ranges. I mean, we're talking about like, you know, Eddie George, Eric Dickerson. I don't know, I think he might even be as taller than, than those guys. And he's a different kind of uh, a running back than they were, and he certainly wasn't that good as them. You know, though we're talking about, you know, those guys were, were college legends. But he was, a, as you said, I mean, Alvin Kamara was started his career at Alabama, then went to J.C., then comes in, and they were kind of a one-two punch. And Jalen Hurd, I think, had a little bit of baggage at Tennessee. Um, but then he switched positions, and people were like, wait a minute, he's going to, you know, and I like to go to Baylor. It wasn't like that program was – was in the dumps after you know the scandal with Art Bryles there and everything else, and he goes there. So he's kind of was a little off the radar. But when you look at the numbers, the workout numbers that he put up back when he was at, at you know at there when he first got there. I mean, you know his speed was good, but even broad jumps almost 11 feet. Vertical jump was really good. And then you look at that the shuttle number, which I think is especially relevant for wide receivers. You know. Three eight seven. I mean, that's remarkable. Last last year in 2018, nobody ran sub four. So, and we're talking about a guy who is who is you know six three two twenty five something like that. I mean, this is not a small guy. So, you know, I'll be curious to see where he ends up and then how much refinement he's going to get. I mean, he had a nice you know nice last year at Baylor, but he was really raw when he got there and. You know, to his credit, I think what we've seen, and you guys know this, you know, being in Philly, Matt Rule is really good at developing players. I mean, there was a bunch of Temple guys, you know, heading to the NFL. They're usually tough. They're well coached. I think Jalen Hurd certainly had the benefit from being in Matt Rule's system because of what you've seen from Matt Rule in the last five or six years and, and how he develops guys. So I think he's going to be an interesting one to follow just because of the athleticism and, like you said, because he has a really unique path there. 
Yeah, I've, I've said it multiple times. I feel like Hurd could be in line for a move even to tight end because of his size and his movement. Uh, he's It's going to be interesting to see where he lands because I feel like you know he goes to a team that wants to kind of move him around. He could be used in so many different ways. I want to ask you one question just about your process with the freak list and just a little bit of uh, inside baseball for us. Do you go back? Do you kind of follow after you write that piece in the summer, that, that series of pieces in the summer? Do you go back and kind of try and track how those guys do throughout the pre-draft process, how they test, and then almost kind of gauge it? Right, did I get great information from this team and this source uh, leading up to when I write that article again in the summer? Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that, you know, it, it, you know almost like it's a pleasant surprise when you see guys who actually Rashawn Gary's numbers at that big. You know, when I remember I first put them out and I had it from it's actually a coach on the team who had told me, you're seeing a guy with 287 running 457 or getting clocked in the 40. I mean, that's insane. And even NFL teams, like one of the teams I spoke to, they thought he was going to run 475. He ran much faster than that. He was close to the number that, that the Michigan staff had told me he was going to be at. Um, now, again, that doesn't mean he's he's a phenomenal football player. This is just, you know, this is a piece of it. Um, you know, like the DK Metcalf number. I'm not saying DK Metcalf is going to be Larry Fitzgerald or anything close. I don't think he will be. But just in terms of the physical freakish nature of him, I mean, that stuff, like I wrote about DK Metcalf a year ago, and he he exceeded that stuff. John Kaminsky backed up everything, you know, the people I had talked to had told me that he was going to do. You see some of these guys, and so, you know, yeah, it's just like reporting anything else. You want, you you know, if the people you trust tell you something and then it turns out not to be the case, then, you you know, you're going to be a little more leery of them the next time or you're going to be skeptical and not kind of roll with it. And Noah Fant backed up all those numbers that, that you know, we touted. Andre Dillard is an offensive tackle from, Washington State came there 6'4", 240 pounds. I mean, he, he blew people away at the combine, ran in the 4'9". Hakeem Butler is a big receiver from Iowa State. He did everything he said. Now, one guy who didn't, one guy who was like way exceeded was Montez Sweat. Um, I didn't hear he was going to run 4'4'2 at that size for a defensive end. But, you know, it's, it's, that's one of the things you always try to, try to match up with what you heard. And I've been doing this thing so long now. You know, I have a lot of people I can lean on to, to give me what they think is, is a good real picture. But I, just to go back to the skepticism that there was of Rashawn Gary, when Rashawn Gary, you know, put up those numbers, you talk to people at Michigan, there weren't like everybody was putting up insane numbers. Like there are some schools that you would hear about years ago where like they had like 11 guys who would jump 40 inches or more and be like, really? That, that part doesn't pass the smell test. You know, you could have one freak in there, but you're not going to have, like, 15 of them, right? And I go back to – I did a recruiting book where I was around Ole Miss for a, for a couple of years. And on their on their uh, depth chart, and they had all the nameplates up, they had, they had the 40 times in addition to what, what their measurables were. And they had one guy on the team, Mike Wallace, who was a receiver, obviously, and he's gone on to the NFL – who at the time was listed on their on their depth chart as running a four two four, and I don't think you know people are like because he wasn't a big big time track guy when he was in high school in New Orleans. I think if I told that to people, they'd be like, "No way, that's inflated." But then when you look at the rest of Ole Miss's T 
team. They had nobody else who ran sub four four five. So it wasn't like there was a bunch of four three guys. It was just he was that much faster than everybody else on the team. And they had plenty of athletes who went on in the NFL. Well then you saw what he did in the NFL and like, okay, that guy really was that fast. And it's believable. So I think you gotta take it in the context of what are they compared to the other guys in their program too. Bruce, obviously that book, The Meat Market, uh, covering that year at Ole Miss, you actually did a piece not too long ago on The Athletic going back and kind of revisiting uh, that book. The last question, and you, you spoke about Mike Wallace, and we saw him here in Philadelphia, even though he didn't really get much on the field because of an injury, but because you're so closely tied to these college players, covering them throughout the years as they develop, is there a player who in this pre-job process is going a little – too far under the radar, in your opinion, as, as someone who's covered college football for so long and seeing which types of players will make that transition and succeed in the NFL, is there a player or two who is not generating buzz that you're kind of like in the back of your head, this guy's going to be a good pro? You know, there's one guy who I, I was – he didn't do great at the combine in terms of his 40 time, and I thought he was was – was going to run a little better, but you watched him a lot. I did, uh, our crew did five Washington games. I think Miles Gaskin is going to be a very productive NFL running back. He was ultra productive. Almost every game he was in for Washington, he was the best player on the field. And he's not big, you know, probably 5'10, 195, 200 pounds. Really, really patient runner. He ran about 4'6, which if I'm Josh Jacobs running 4'6, okay, you know, I can, I can. You know, I can live with that if I'm Miles Gaskin. I mean, the comparison is Philip Lindsay, who was at Colorado, was really productive. Obviously, he's had a really good rookie year. Philip Lindsay, though, ran much, much faster at the combine. And I'm not saying that people expected uh, Miles Gaskin to run 438 or 441, but I think they expected, you know, 449 ish or, you know, around 450. But I, I still think he's going to be a very good NFL running back. I mean, I'm intrigued by him. There's a guy, again, and I'm not, I mentioned this is a really good uh, tight end draft, I think. Foster Moreau from LSU is a guy who characterizes off the charts. I mean, I could see him being a, you know, he'll, as soon as he finishes, if he wants to go this route, he'll be a college coach. Um, and because people will scoop him up. I know the people inside the LSU program love that kid. Uh, he tested really well. I just don't think I mean, he wasn't always utilized in the old system they had, but I could see him in the NFL for 10 years. I think he's going to be a guy who's going to be a very solid player who's going to help some teams out, so I could see him being really good. And then, um, you know, it's, it's, just, uh, it's just how they, these guys fit and, and what they do in, their, in the systems they're in and what they, what they enter. But I could definitely see, um, you know, also like three wide receivers from Ohio State. I don't think any of them will be first-round picks, but I think they'll all, Terry McLaurin, Paris Campbell, Johnny Dixon, I think they'll all be solid NFL players for a long time just because I know what they meant to that program and, and how valuable they were within the program, and I think they'll probably turn out to be better than maybe where they end up getting drafted. Love it. Love that. That's exactly right there. Why I wanted to have Bruce Feldman from The Athletic. Again, follow him on Twitter, at Bruce Feldman, CFB. Thank you so much, Bruce, for being our Mr. Relevant this week. Up next, Fran Duffy had a chance to catch up with linebacker Sione Takitaki out BYU back at the Shrine game. That is this week's unofficial visit. The unofficial visit. 
Here now with BYU linebacker Sione Takitaki. And Siona, just want to talk to you about this transition. What's this been like for you? Has this been an experience been about what you expected it would be coming down here? Yeah, it's, it's been a good experience. Um, come out here with all these great athletes and compete, you know, compete with the best. So, um, you know, I've, I've liked the coaches. You know, we have tons of great coaches, and it was good to get a feel for, you know, how the next level is going to be. And so every, the whole transition has been well, and I'm learning every day. You know, every minute I'm learning something new. And so I really enjoy it. And you've been a very, very productive player over the course of your career with BYU. For fans who have yet to see you play, give us a quick scouting report of what you feel you can do best in the NFL. Yeah, I feel like I'm a, I'm, I have a high motor. Um, I can run sideline to sideline. You know, I'm a linebacker that, you know, can play the three down and um, can run for days. And so... I feel like I'm an intelligent kid who, who knows schemes and all that stuff. And so I feel like if, you know, whoever gets me is going to get a, you know, a lead linebacker that's going to um, do his job every day. And you've played a number of different positions there for BYU. Yeah, yeah. What's your favorite role to play, you know, in terms of all the different things you were asked to do? Um, I, I like that it's kind of – I would say that's a hard question because I like the mic and I like the wheel. And so I say those are 50-50 because, you know, with the wheel, you know, you get to blitz off the edge and stuff and get to the quarterback and, and the mic, man. You're, you're making the calls and you're in every tackle. You know, you're silent. You're right there in the middle of it all. And so I would say, you know, both of those positions, are really, I really enjoy those, both of those positions. You won Defensive Player of the Year for your team last year when you guys had Fred Warner who went in the second round. I mean, you've played with a lot of very talented players. Have you been keeping touch with guys like Fred? And what's that been like communicating with guys that have gone on from BYU to the NFL? Yeah, man, I've talked to you know, all, tons of guys that are, went from BYU to the NFL. But, you know, Fred, I, I talked to him quite a bit. Um, he's just, you know, kind of, you know, prepping me up, letting me know, hey, man, this next level is no joke. You know, take care of your body, all the little things. And so it's good to get, you know, those that close input, you know, with somebody at the next level who, who's doing really well. You know, be like you said, BYU had a good linebacker last year with, with Fred Warner, and now he's doing big things. And so I hope to be that guy next up. Uh, I know I can, you know, fill, those, fill those, that role and, and uh, do my best, get out there and do my job. And then lastly, what feedback have you gotten from scouts and from teams in terms of the things that you want to see improve going to the NFL? Um, you know, uh, we haven't really – you know, talked really about what I need to improve. It's all been good things, you know, with the scouts. You know, they're talking to me about how, you know, they like my motor and um, how I play sideline to sideline and things like that. Um, they like how I played, you know, DN all 2017. Um, I played Will, Mike, and so they like the, 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 the versatility that I have in, 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 in those uh, roles and schemes. And so um, it's all been good input. But, um, I, you know, I hope this, you know, today, you know, I'm going to have a lot, a lot more interviews and we'll see how it goes. Yeah, well, Sione, you've also been through a, a lot of adversity throughout the course of your life, throughout the course of your career. How do you think that that has helped shape you and get you ready for this whole process? Oh, it, you know, everything that happened at BYU, you know, I feel like, you know, needed to happen. You know, I was like a knucklehead kid coming in. And um, I left really a really mature kid. You know, I'm married. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm a LDS kid. I'm Mormon, you know. Um, and so I got married in temple with my wife and, uh, and uh, you know, got, got right with the man above. And so, you know, things are on the up for me. You know, even though I started off real slow, you know, I got suspended for a lot of games, missed the whole year. Um, but, you know, I, I feel like I had to go through those struggles, you know, to find who I am now. And so... Um, I, I appreciate everything I went through. Yeah, in a draft class full of great stories, I think you're one of the best. And so I'm really rooting for you moving forward throughout the rest of the process. Best of luck this week and then through the rest of the pre-draft process. I appreciate it, man. Now it's time to hear from you, the fans, in the draft mailbag. One thing I love about the fact that this podcast is available for fans to watch on YouTube is 
how you see us interact on like the phones and like the. I, I wonder if people like it, it's it's a long podcast. I mean, it's an hour long. I don't know if people are sitting there watching the whole thing and but it's it's intriguing to see if like people are picking up on like little things like why is he checking his phone or like why is he scurrying to do this during during a segment so Got a lot going on exactly so uh draft mailback okay yes. again fran was stoked about it. he loved the question that came in on apple podcast on twitter uh because we do work for the eagles i, I kind of wanted to touch real quick the nfl annual meeting is taking place right now uh we've heard Doug Pearson had his the hour-long coaches' breakfast press conference. Took place this morning. Howie Roseman met with the media yesterday. Uh, just kind of want to talk about some big-picture things. There was nothing really newsworthy, I would say. There, were, there wasn't anything breaking news-wise other than the fact uh, that there will be joint practices between the Eagles and the Ravens. That'll be fun. That will be a good time leading into week three of the preseason. That game will be in Philadelphia, so the Eagles will be hosting the Ravens. And, of course, you have John Johnny Harbs uh, coming back here to Philly once again. Um, I think Carson Wentz was the big topic, and it actually – Jeffrey Lurie will be doing his uh, State of the Team address later on this evening. And I feel like Carson's going to be a consistent theme throughout all three of them. Uh, Howie's standpoint was just basically that we want Carson long-term. We are working toward an extension. Whether that happens this offseason, next, remains to be seen. Doug Pearson saying that you know I'm married to Carson from the quarterback head coach standpoint. He's everything that we thought we were getting when we drafted him. He has nothing to prove at this point. Um, you know, last year was tough for him having to come off the injury, you know, try to rehab while improving his craft because he's still a young quarterback and then being thrown into action, then suffering the back injury. You know, it's been a roller coaster year for Carson Wentz. It'll be good for him whenever he gets on the field. And it seems like it'll be sooner rather than later when OTs begin to have that full offseason to work with his teammates. Yeah, and I would agree with you. That I would imagine that uh, when Jeffrey Lurie speaks later on Tuesday night, Carson will be a big topic Certainly. of conversation as well. And he should be. He's the franchise quarterback uh, of this team. One of my big takeaways, I always like listening you know, and hearing comments about some of the young players on the team. So, okay. you know, when uh, Doug was asked about, uh, you know, who are some of the young guys that could take a next step, and he mentioned, you know, the young offensive linemen, the young defensive backs, uh, you know, guys like uh, Avante Maddox and, uh, you know, Matt Pryor, Sidney Jones. I mean, he mentioned some of those guys. So, to me, like, that, that's something that, um, you know, going into the offseason, the offseason is about getting better. Uh, and when you look at some of these young guys, there's opportunity for growth for a lot of those spots. And so I'm excited to see the competition along the offensive line. I'm excited to see the competition in the secondary. Uh, we talked about it with the re-signing of Ronald Darby. It's going to be a fun competition this spring and this summer. You know, Jalen Mills will be back. Ronald Darby's going to be back. A lot of those younger guys started to get reps. Avante Maddox, where does he fit in? Inside, outside, safety, where, where is he going to play? Um, it's going to be a lot of fun to just watch how these young guys compete in this roster this offseason. One interesting name, I didn't know if you were going to go this route when he was specifically naming guys. He was asked about the receivers. He said Braxton Miller, who a lot of people will forget was on the practice squad. Third-round pick. Yeah, for the Eagles this past season. I yeah. thought that was kind of noteworthy. Uh, other thing with uh, – Running back position, you know, they're not going to force it in the draft, even though I know that's Eagles fans, you know, on social media, Twitter, they're like, sign a running back, trade for a running back, get the, where's the running back? Uh, they're not going to force it. Darren Sproles, I guess, is still in the picture, possibly. Doug said he would love to have him back, but at this point, Darren is deciding whether he wants to come back or, or not for 2019. Uh, other interesting takeaway from Howie, two parts here. One, that the free agency approach – 
has allowed the Eagles to generate a lot of comp picks for next season and and how he's saying how the last couple of years because of certain trades especially the Carson one they didn't have a lot of firepower especially in the early rounds of the draft uh you know this year obviously they have three of the first 57 selections which is huge for them and how he knows that's a huge draft for him and the organization next year they're hoping to have 10 11 total draft picks they realize that if they're going to get Carson Wentz on this long-term deal they're going to have to surround a lot of young talent you know, a lot of these young guys are going to have to come in and play, and comp picks is one of the best ways to do so. The other thing on the flip side, while you're talking a lot about young guys, age is something that if you go, you know, the Andy Reid era, you wouldn't see this team adding guys who are around 29, 30 years old or signing them to extensions. But Howie Roseman's saying that because of the salary cap situation, it's harder to have free agent classes like 2016 when they got right. Rodney McLeod and Brandon Brooks, guys who were 25, 26 in their prime coming off that rookie contract. Teams are much more diligent at signing those guys long-term and keeping those guys. So you have to be more open-minded to guys who might be a little bit older, like Malik Jackson, like trading for Deshaun Jackson, as long as they've proven that they fill a role and that they can – show that they've remained healthy and durable throughout their careers. Yeah, and you're not going to sign a, a 33-year-old to a five-year deal. I mean, you're going to come Correct. in, you're not, you're not going to have to commit a lot of resources to them. And, uh, you know, you, you kind of figure it out. It gives you the, that versatility as well. And we've talked about this in the past. When you get into the draft, because you sign Andrew Sandejo to a one-year deal, because you sign, uh, you know, you mentioned Malik Jackson to a, to a three-year deal, now you don't have to force the issue at a certain at our defensive tackle or for a safety. I mean, you don't you don't have to if the, if the situation presents itself. Great, it's there. You've got that flexibility, but uh, that's one of the things that's also great about going that route as well. All right, so kind of transitioning from talking about uh, young players in depth. Our first question comes from Eagle underscore from underscore Chai underscore Town on Apple Podcasts. He must have been really popular after the wild card round. This season, uh, love the show. New, great, in-depth analysis, making this off-season feel all the much shorter. Uh, everybody, and especially Howie, has talked about the depth along the defensive line in this draft class. With the depth at defensive line, who mm. do you like as a day two or day three value pick? There's actually another question that we'll get to after that, but um, a later, mid to later round value pick mm. along the defensive line. Well. There are, a few, there are a few guys, and this is a, since it's a deep group, there are a lot of guys you can bring up. I mean, uh, you know I have a soft spot for Jalen Jelks from Oregon as a, as a pass yes. rusher. Um, you know, I think that this de- – to me, when I look at the two groups, at defensive end for the Eagles and defensive tackle, I think defensive tackle, the depth, quote-unquote, is the depth in high-quality blue-chip players. Like there are – I mean, there's probably, what, five, you know, maybe six guys that are going to go in that top 45, top 50. I mean, there's a yeah. lot of really quality players – I would say that probably falls off a little bit after that. And then you go to D-end, there's, you have that depth at the top, and then there's also depth quality throughout the course of the draft as well. I mean, guys like Jelks, uh, you know, just from a numbers standpoint, like probably not going to go in the first couple of days. Like he's, he's probably going to fall to day three. So, um, you know, I think when you look at him, you look at a guy like Colin Saunders to shift inside a defensive tackle mm-hmm. uh, from Western Illinois, was at the senior bowl. Both guys were at the senior bowl, um, had solid weeks of practice down there. Uh, you know, is there anybody that, that strikes Tristan your, Hill? Tristan Hill, great Central, one. Central Florida. Uh, His did, film's outstanding. Who didn't know a thing about him, and then we're at the combine, and you know, Fran and I are watching the drills, and I'm like, 
you know, it's like I, you have the jersey number and you keep you know writing little notes, and I, I'm like, I keep writing. I think he, I want to say he was like number 35, DL 35, and I feel like I kept writing that number over and over again. I'm like, who, who the heck is Tristan Hill? You know, and then I ask you, and then you went and checked the tape, and you're like, this kid's pretty good. And he only a, started one game this year. There was a transition in the yes. coaching staff, and yep. it seems like that might have led to him leaving early. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he he started his first two years on campus under the old staff. The old the old staff left. They go into Nebraska. New staff comes in. Whatever happened there, I don't really know what's what's going on behind the scenes. But he only started one game. What was still a, a very key part of that defensive line rotation. This guy gets upfield. He's really athletic, which we saw in person. He's got a high motor. He's violent. He's urgent. I like a lot about what I saw from Tristan Hill. So, second part of the question here is what positions I'll, – I'll see if I'm reading it the same way he is. What right. positions may have less depth outside of rounds one and two do you like as a day one, day two pick? Kind oh, yeah, of like yeah. – so I'm taking as – The opposite end. Yeah, yeah, where there's not as much depth at this X position who you might need to get early on if you want to get on that. I think the, the two positions that people look at in this draft as being not as deep are corner – Certainly. And linebacker. So I think you look at that and you say, okay, like who are the guys that are at the top of the, at the top of the board at corner? Greedy Williams. You know he's going to fall to the later part of round one. Um, you know you. Why? I think, but that's you. You did the meet the prospect on, on yep. Greedy and kind of addressed it. But typically, when you have someone who's played in the SEC, who's who's played well in the SEC, who has height, speed, and length, and is not considered a top ten lock. There's a red flag. Well, I think the, the, the issues that you have with Greedy are, the, number one, he's not good against the run, and number two, he does have issues at times trying to find the ball late downfield. He can finish at the catch point. His hands are really good. If he sees the ball the whole way, he's in good shape. He can play the ball. Natural athlete. But in terms of when he's, got, when he's in recovery mode, when he's out of phase, he's got his back to the quarterback, and he's running to catch up to the receiver, he struggles with his timing in terms of, all right, I'm, now I'm hip-to-hip hip with the receiver. I'm good. Now let me turn and try and find the football and track it over the shoulder and try and make the play. That's that's the problem he does have. So that's one of the reasons why you're talking, you know, potentially him falling to the latter stages around one. Mm-hmm. And everybody's kind of grouped there. And right now it seems like the group think it's like, all right, like who are the names? It's it's greedy. It's Byron Murphy, who Tony talked about earlier. You know, the lack of length is going to be a real concern. I mean, he's got I think it's 31 in some inch arms. I mean, that's. That's very, very short arms for the cornerback spot. Rocky Sin, is he athletic enough to be uh, that kind of corner on the outside? Sean Bunting, small, lower level of competition, only a couple years as a starter. You know, where is he going to be at? Uh, Jawan Williams, is he athletic enough to be on the outside? There's a lot of big questions with a lot of these corners, and so that's where I think um, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how they all stack at the end of the day. Linebacker, you got the two Devons at the top, Devin White, Devin Bush. And then it's a lot of kind of pick your flavor after that. I mean, if you if you don't mind a guy that, that maybe doesn't test all that well, you know, I I like T.J. Edwards a lot from Wisconsin. Uh, Mac Wilson is kind of the other side of the spectrum. He's not as instinctive as Edwards. He's not as uh, you know good at the point at the point of contact as Edwards. But he's really athletic. He's outstanding in coverage. Made a lot of plays on the football, moving in reverse. So I think when you look at Mac Wilson uh, from Alabama, there's a lot to like there as well. Linebacker, I think, is getting a little bit of a bad rap. I do think that there's more talent at linebacker than people are giving credit for. But again, it's going to come down to what your your favorite flavor is, what you're looking for at the position. Do you see? I would figure Wilson seems like he's a day two guy. Do you yeah, think? Day, so. Do you think Edwards is a day two guy? Just I'm Ooh. just going going back to to the yeah, question here. It seems sure. like like you said the That's Devons the Devons are locks for. I think Wilson's a day two one. guy. Yep. And then is that is that it? Possibly. 
You know, I think that there are a couple of other guys that you could potentially sneak, sneak, uh, sneak in there. You know, Dane Brugler has given a lot of love to the Jelani Tavai kid from Hawaii, um, and I think that he's a really, really intriguing player. You just have to have a kind of you kind of have to have, to have a plan with that kid because. He's so raw. He's been used in so many different ways. His skill set is so unique that you want to make sure that he fits into what you're doing on defense. If you have an idea, like if you if you're you know a Mike Zimmer team, you know if you're a team that plays and you look at him and say, oh, he can be what Anthony Barr is for for us. Yeah, like pick that guy in the second round and you feel like you're good. But you want to make sure you have that plan. All right. Next question again. We'll take the question from Apple Podcast first and foremost. Here, Black Island twenty four goes. Put on your Arizona Cardinals GM hat for a second. Oh, this is a good one. Play yeah. the role of Steve Kahn. What would you do? Trade the number this is with the number one overall pick. Trade it, draft Colin Murray, and trade Josh Rosen, or take someone else, whether it's Bosa, Josh Allen, Quinn Williams. So if I'm operating completely on my own here, then I'm going to try and trade back and, and keep Rosen. But Okay, now when you say operate on your own, are you saying working with the coaching staff? You have to work. No, that's going to be my next point is you have to work with the coaching staff. Yeah. If Cliff Kingsbury looks at Josh Rosen and says, like, yeah, that's not what I want for that quarterback, as much as it hurts, you just traded up to take Josh Rosen a year ago. If the situation presents itself where you can get decent value back, then I think you try and make that move. The thing is, is like if you know, you're hearing now, like, oh, they're only going to get a three back for Josh Rosen, like, I don't, I don't know if that's if that's good enough for me. I, I'm almost looking at Kingsbury. Like to me, like when you're hiring the coach, I guess it depends on how you feel internally about the quarterback. And this goes to Kime and it goes to the ownership there. If they say, all right, well, Josh Rosen is good. Like we're looking at Josh Rosen internally as he, he's our guy. Then you almost have to, when you're talking with your new your new coach, you have to figure out like, okay, like are you going to be able to make it work with Josh Rosen? He's our guy. Yeah. If not, and if they're willing to move on, that. That says what you, they think about Josh Rosen, right? I mean, that's that's kind of where you're at at this point. Yeah. To me, do you have to trade him? Certainly, if Cliff Kingsbury wants him, take him number one. Could you have an RG3 Kirk Cousins situation where, you know, we've seen in Philadelphia the value yep. of the backup quarterback. Obviously, you might say, why not try to get something back for him? But like you just mentioned, if the best you're going to get is a three, maybe it's worth just – sitting on him for a couple of years. Obviously, you got to work out salary cap, and but still going to be more cost-efficient because it is a rookie contract. But still, knowing that you have at least that development, that competition going on inside your quarterback room. Or it could be they might just say, Josh Rosen is not going to be a fit for what we want to do whatsoever. We want to go with Murray. That's but. the thing. Like you would, you would think that if they felt as strongly about him as – you know, like I would, I would imagine, like if if Jeffrey Lurie and and Howie Rosen are interviewing somebody, saying like, oh, like let's say Carson got here the year before Doug got yeah. here, you know, they, they, you know, and they said, all right, Doug, like, what do you think of Carson? And he's like, yeah, I don't think I'm gonna be able to make it work. They're probably not gonna hire. You know yeah. what I mean? Like they're gonna say like, well, this is our guy. Like we feel really good about this being our guy. That that's kind of what that says to me. That whole situation. All right, next question. Let's go to Twitter at Eagles fan Wales wants to know. Quick question. I really enjoyed Drew Locke's pro day. And how Jordan Palmer took control and coordinated the session. However, how does that sit with the Missouri staff having an external coach coming in and taking over? Well, for pro days, it almost is never the the current staff that organizes the pro day. Okay, almost always it's going to be uh, with a quarterback. It's always always going to be the, whoever the trainer is that's working with them. Um, 
almost always. It, you know, you'll, sometimes you'll see, you know, a quarterback, oh, he's going to stay and he's going to work with his own staff and he's not going to go to a quarterback trainer. That, but the way that it works in today's draft process now is that almost all these quarterbacks go and they work with a quarterback guru. Um, you know, and there's a few of them out there now that work with these guys, and they're going to be the ones that run the pro day, run the workout, and have everything scripted out the way that they want it. Sometimes you'll see it, like I said, where it is the offensive coordinator that does it uh, or the head coach that does it, but it's very, very rare these days. Now, if this were spring practice, if this were a year ago and Jordan Palmer's coming in and running everything, uh, you know, leading up to spring practice for uh, Drew Locke going into his final year, that's, that's, that's different. a different scenario. Yeah. But for pro day, no, this is, uh, this is par for the course. Okay. At Mark Barkley, with two L's, wants to know, do you have a ranking between, okay, we're going safeties here, Juan Thornhill, Chauncey Gardner-Johnson, and Nasir Adderley? Who would be the best fit with the Eagles? Mark himself thinks that Adderley would be the best, or I should say, Gardner Johnson would have the biggest impact as the third safety in 2019. Adderley would be the best center fielder, which would allow you to move Rodney McLeod around if you take him. So let's take the two parts. Sure. First, the rankings. So I, I don't think you can, you know, because I think when you look at the safeties, right, um, I think when you look at the safety position in general, especially in, the, in today's NFL, you have to look at them as complete, almost different positions. Like all these guys, I would say all of them. I think when you look at Chauncey Gardner-Johnson, you can't look at and put him completely next to Juan Thornhill and say that it's an apples-to-apples comparison because Chauncey Gardner-Johnson, he was a slot corner. Like he, he was the slot corner for the Gators this year. That's mm-hmm. the role that he played. He didn't play in base. You look at Juan Thornhill and to an extent to Nazir Adderley as well because they, they kind of played the same position. They were post players. They mo- spent most of their time as, as free safety. So I think when you look at those two guys, they serve different roles for your defense, in, at least in terms of how you, again, you're t- seeing what they did in the past and trying to project. So you might think, oh, Chauncey Gardner-Johnson, yeah, he was the slot corner, but he'd be able to do that and play free safety. Or, hey, Juan Thornhill, he played in the post, but you know what? He could be a great tight end matchup guy for us. Same thing with Nazir Adderley. Oh, he could be a great matchup guy for us in the secondary. You have to kind of project that, but – to me, you're looking at that, and that's why every team is going to stack them differently, uh, and it ultimately just comes down to what you're looking for. Now, you look at these guys, and it's like, all right, well, you know, we talked about Eagles comparisons earlier in the mm-hmm. show. I look at Chauncey Gardner-Johnson, almost kind of similar to like an Avante Maddox. Like he's that kind of a player, right? Like he's an he's an undersized, versatile, scrappy defensive back that gives you that versatility. He started his career as a corner, has played some safety, but spent most of his time in the slot. Maddox didn't spend a ton of time in the slotted pit, but that, yeah. that's the projection for him, right? And so I think when you look at Chauncey, that's, the, that's how you kind of view him. With Thornhill and Adderley, you're looking more at those guys as pure center fielders. Let's play them in the post. Uh, you want to kind of keep them away from the football, let them see everything and get, and get there. Um, that's kind of how I view those three guys separately. Yeah. I like Thornhill a lot. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big and, and I like the other guys as well. Um, I'm a big. I've I've been a big Juan Thornhill. This is going back to like his sophomore year. I've I've been a big fan of Juan Thornhill for a long time. Our right, next question at Sean Wolford wants to know in uh, Bucky Brooks's newest mock draft, both Josh Jacobs and Christian Wilkins are there at 25. Assuming the Eagles roster is the way it sits right now, who are you going with? And I know, I know your answer. I feel like. Well, or, or I mean, really? Yeah. Well, no. I think really? it's, it's well, no. It's it what? Is Wilkins. It, well, the, what's my answer is, and what's my opinion? It's Wilkins. My, my opinion is Wilkins. But in terms of the answer, like, what will the Eagles do, or what should they do? It depends on how they grade both guys, right? Like, if they grade if they grade them similarly, 
and say like, okay, we think that you know, however their tiering system, however their grading system is, if they have them in the same tier, now that's when it becomes a discussion and you start talking about positional value and how they stack and things like that. But if one of them, let's say one grades as you know, and again without knowing what their tiering system, if one of them grades, if it's a number grade like how you know Lance Erline does for NFL, if one of them is a six four, right, a six point four, and one of them is a, a five point nine or a six point two. Then you're going to go with the guy that's the, the six point two. You're going Correct. with the better player. If they're similar, now you look at it and you're saying, "All right, well, you know, we've got them both with similar grades. This is where need might come into play." And you might say, "Oh, well, you know, next year for us, this is what Josh Jacobs would be. Next year for us, this is what Christian Wilkins would be." And that would be the discussion they would have at that point. And keep in mind, over the next few weeks, those are the discussions that are being had. Like they will Certainly. sit upstairs and every team all around the NFL, and they're going to sit. All right. Let's go through a mock draft. Let's run through it. We're going to run through, okay, for the first 24 picks, this is how they pan out. Here's who's on the board for us. Oh, Christian Wilkins and Josh Jacobs are here. What are we doing? How are we, how are we hashing this out? Okay, in this case, we're going to go with Wilkins. All right, now let's do it again. All right, rack it up. Now, Josh Jacobs versus Dexter Lawrence. All right, how are we doing this? And they and that's how they kind of uh, kind of have those discussions. They will structure them that way and it, you know, certain times throughout the course of the next month. Does this scenario give you any pause? For me personally, I – a little bit, a little bit, but I, to me, like I think when you look at uh, you look at Wilkins, um, you feel really, really good about. And I think when you look, talk about like positional value and stuff like that, that certainly comes into play. All right, next question at So Locked In uh, wants to know what are you guys hearing about Marquise Blair as a prospect? What we're hearing, I, don't know, I haven't heard a ton of buzz about Marquise Blair lately. Um, you know, I on film like I. I really liked him in terms. You know, he's a violent hitter. Um, small. He's a skinny. He's he's not short, but he's very very skinny. I know he's put on weight since the end of the season. I want to say he was at like one seventy or one seventy eight. Like a really really skinny kid. And but he came in at the combine at like I want to say like one ninety five or maybe even close to two hundred. He's put on a lot of weight, uh, which was good for him. He needed to. But he is a violent hitter. Um, did play mostly in the post. Junior college transfer has only been there a couple of years, but um, a guy that kind of flew under the radar coming into the season. But I think once you got into the fall and you started to see him, uh, you know, really honestly, be one of the most uh, intimidating players in the Pac-12. Uh, he started to gain some buzz. Jim Nagy talked about him back in the fall uh, as a guy he was really impressed with. He ended up at the Senior Bowl. Um, I thought he was solid down there in Mobile. So I think when you look at Marquise Blair, end of the day. In this senior class, I think he's probably going to be like a fourth, fifth round pick. That would be my guess. Okay. Next question at Clee underscore Spartans wants to know, uh, you know, ask us questions about every week. Appreciate it as always. Uh, what are you hearing about Cavante Turpin as a draftable prospect? You know, dynamic on the field, but has troubles off of it. Uh, yeah, he did have. I want to say. It was a, it was a pretty severe accusation, and I don't know what, where that stands at this moment. I think it may have been. I don't want to even try and guess as to what it was. So um, there was. A, I know there was a very serious allegation. He he is dynamic. He's very very small, um, an explosive playmaker, versatile. Um, but until that situation gets kind of situated, uh, you know, I don't want. Again, I don't want to kind of speculate it. Again, it's all kind of alleged at this point. I don't think anything was official. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of the dark cloud there. Yeah, accused of a domestic assault there. Yeah. Uh, next one here at Tom D S two one five. How do teams balance the depth at a position with team needs to assess what is the best place? to pick a player seems like offensive line has a bit of drop off after the top 45 while running back and safety could have some quality players available for instance 
Well, it gets into the discussion we had um, a little bit earlier with uh, Christian Wilkins and Josh Jacobs. Yeah. It gets into the, the question we had a little bit earlier before that. I think the was the first question uh, of the day. I think you know you get into you know looking at all these positions, and that that does play a little bit of a factor, and for for some teams more than others. But you also you don't you you just don't know how the, how a draft's going to pan out. You can't say, oh, you know what? There's there's six running backs left that we really really like, and we pick again in a couple of rounds. Like they'll all be there. You know, you, you, you can't you can't necessarily operate that way. And that's no. why when the be, you know the best teams, when they go into a draft, they don't want to feel that way. They don't want to have that feeling, that temptation. They want to make sure, hey, if we can if we have to play a game on Sunday like this in three days, we're going to be able to line up. We can play. Let's go into the draft. Not having, uh, you know, any guy was talking to Dan Hatman last week on the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast. Yep. So it's like going into a uh, going into a supermarket, you know, going food shopping when you're hungry. Like you don't want to have to do that. You mm-hmm. want to go in with your list and say, like, all right, this is what I need. Go in, go into a draft knowing that you don't have any huge holes on your roster, and then you just go and get the best players. That's to me, that's the best way to do it. And, and again, you just you don't want to leave yourself to force anything. That's, that's what you don't want to do. That's the biggest no thing doubt. there. So, uh, a last one, second one here from Sean Wolford. How do you decide? between drafting a player at a position of depth on your team with starter Pro Bowl potential mm. versus a player at an area of need with only starting potential? Yeah, it's, and that's an interesting question. I think, um, you know, when you look at... This reminds me of the 2002 draft. Okay. This is the... 2002 draft. This is the this Leo is the Shepard, yeah, right? yep. Sheldon, Sheldon Brown, Brian Westbrook. This is where you have... Guys already in place, but you're probably looking a little bit down the line in terms of all that comes into play. No that, question. You know, you're trying to not just look how we talk about all the time. You're not just constructing a roster for 2019. You're looking at what 20 and 21 are going to look like. So you have to, you know, factor that into into uh, play here. Um, but the big thing is, you know, everyone would have said going to that draft, you don't need a cornerback, but. Who were the starting cornerbacks when they made it to the Super Bowl a couple years later? It was those guys that they that they drafted. So you don't you don't want to get to a situation where you wait too long to address it, and all of a sudden you have a huge gaping hole at a premium position, especially. Blue chip players are hard to find. Like it, it's hard to find blue chip players. So if you feel like you evaluate a player like a Dallas Goddard as a guy that that's, can a, be a, that's a another good example, game changing player. Um, you know that can help your team, even though you have a great player already in Zach Ertz. You're not going to do that at quarterback, right? Like you're not going to do that at quarterback. But any other position where you can get those guys on the field at the same time, you're going to do it because I think any time you've got that ability to be able to acquire a great player, you're going to pull the trigger, especially if you feel really good. There's nothing wrong with adding a great player to your roster. I'm just trying to think: is there another example with the Eagles in recent years where they've? really done that nothing is jumping out at the moment i'm just trying to go through like the current roster and see if there's any guys who were drafted early like that but you know just because you already have a guy in place because because of injuries and depth you you almost need to have multiple guys across the board you know i think you the dallas goddard example i think is a very good one you could also argue that dallas goddard was is a different player than zach Ertz and right. fills a different of course. role yeah, that's, what, that's what i mean you know in terms of yeah. just the same position but right. but yes but Overall, though, I think at the end of the day, you look at the cornerback position for the Eagles, you know, with all the injuries they went through last year, it's like you need to make sure that you have quality depth there. I don't think I don't think they're going to take a corner in the first round. 
Okay, I think they also realize they need to let some of these young guys develop and grow because of the resources they've already put into the position. You know, and I think you kind of hit on it that there's really not a guy who's a slam dunk top tier player at that position this year. Well, Otherwise, that's part of it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. Otherwise, he would probably he'd be not there for the Eagles at 25. Right. So, um, but I, I agree with you in the sentiment that it doesn't. I would. If I'm the Eagles in a certain situation like this, I think you're trying to take a guy if he's that much higher potential. I think you have to take it. You have to make your team better. The other part, the other portion of this we haven't talked about is also the the idea of trading down. I mean, you, that's you, true. You've got the ability if in that situation to be able to trade down, get more picks, and now if the clock's click ticking, and then you say, "All right, we have no choice. Take the great play." Yeah, exactly. So uh, great stuff there. That is going to do it for this edition of the Journey to the Draft podcast, episode number 151, uh, the last one for the month of March. Can you believe that? You may have just heard my eyes rolling in the back of my head. <laughs> Anx- angst is just rolling Shouldn't through be. my body. This is the exciting time. We talk about angst. You're, set, you're good. You could, the, if the draft were, were today, you'd be fine, and you know it. I, I know I'd be fine. I, you know, I just, I, there's, you, you never have enough time to watch these guys. I'm going back today, and I'm like, all right, I'm going to watch. I'm going to rewatch, uh, you know, more Juan Thornhill, more Miles Sanders, more of this guy, more of that guy. Like, I'm always there's always time to go back and watch. You, one. Do you stop? This is actually uh, well, end on this note here. Kyle Krabs, great job with Draft Network, said that he stops early April. I think it was a uh, you know the new Avengers movie coming out. You know, by the first week of April, I don't he's, blame him. Yep, for he's that one. he's done. Do you have a, a point where you no? I, w- I was watching guys. I actually watched. I'll give you a uh, de- the 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 um, day start of day two last year. I went and I watched the two South Florida defensive tackles. Deidre Sanat went in the third round, and Bruce Hector was a, an Eagles pickup. I watched him literally the morning of day two of the draft. The Eagles didn't have a pick first round. Day two of the draft, I got in in the first thing in the morning. I'm like, oh, I'm going to watch them guys. Oh, I haven't watched the two South Florida defense tackles yet. I'm going to watch those two guys. So there you go. So I'm watching guys up through. Uh, phenomenal work is always behind the glass by none other than the super talented Melissa Kelly. Thank you so much. And we appreciate you for all of your comments, your likes, your ratings, your reviews, everything, wherever you listen to our podcast. That's going to do it for this edition of the During to the Draft podcast. For Fran Duffy, I'm Chris McPherson. Farewell. We will be back next month.